0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops.
0: Every city you go to, the Salt and Straw is completely different than any other city.
2: We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. A neighborhood restaurant in New York can be a magical place. Locals walk over after a long day and are greeted by name, and after becoming a regular, maybe the bartender already knows their order. Tourists can stumble upon it while exploring a neighborhood and tell their friends back home they discovered an authentic spot filled with locals. Rukula, located in Boreham Hill, is one of those tucked away under the radar Brooklyn gems that is equally charming as it is tasty. And I felt the same way about Meta in Fort Greene, which has now trans- transitioned into a completely different concept that we will definitely chat about today on the show. My guest today is one of the hands behind Rukula and many other Brooklyn restaurant concepts as part of his Oberon restaurant group that encompasses seven different operations restaurants, bars, catering, and event spaces. Henry Rich is an entrepreneur and climate activist. He opened Rucola, June, Fitzcarraldo, and Meta, which now has reopened as Redora Wine Bar. He has also opened the commissary at the Metrograph nowadays, which is a sprawling outdoor-indoor I'll just describe it as a DJ party. He'll he'll talk about that. And he organized the vegan food program at Public Records. Prior to opening restaurants, Henry co-founded and managed Oral Fixation Mints, a specialty manufacturing and distribution company with operations across the world. In 2018, all of Oberon's projects went forward with becoming carbon neutral. Redora Wine Bar, which just recently opened, has taken this several steps further with the goal of being a zero-waste restaurant. When you consider how much waste a restaurant generates, paper, plastic, food scraps, it's an incredible challenge. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Henry's first projects, what he did before becoming a restaurateur, how he transitioned into this current life, and what it really takes to create a zero-waste restaurant. Henry, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks. It's great to be here.
2: Before beginning your career as a restaurateur and entrepreneur, you were a musician, right? Yep. So you did touring. You ha- had this totally different lifestyle. Talk a little bit about what it was to kind of go around the world working as a musician. And, uh, did that open you up to your love of food or was that something that you, that you always had?
3: Um, well in college I, I had the good fortune to be in, um, actually it's kind of lame, but, uh, an acapella group that, um, went on world tours every summer. And I was able to stay in some cool hotels where we'd, Sing in the lobby, and they'd put us up, and that was definitely my first experience of, you know, hospitality and and travel. I'd, I'd never really been anywhere, but I got to go through Asia, and Australia, Africa, Europe, South America, and it was it was pretty incredible, informative experience. And you know, eighteen to twenty-two, and um, then in my band, it was it was mostly you know playing New York and. Kind of Lori's side, and um, we did a couple, a bit of touring around the country. But my my thought was, I wanted to start my own business so that I'd have the flexibility to keep playing music, which, you know, definitely was a double edged sword. The uh, lack of boundaries with having your own business,
2: and and so when you're when you're in college and uh, you're obviously you're touring and you're with this a cappella group, what were you studying and? Did you see yourself going into a specific career at that point, or did you think the kind of entrepreneurial lifestyle was always going to work for you, even at that young age?
3: No. I, I, I took the least practical major and attempted to make it even even less practical. I, I was studying philosophy, and I wanted to do a specialization <laughs> in aesthetics. So studying music, um, visual art, and literature, which was really fun, um, and, and I loved it, but... Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do afterwards. I, I was working briefly as an assistant for Anthony Appia, and I worked. I worked in a wine store. You know, that was that was my first job out of college. So I guess it's kind of fitting that I'm doing what I'm doing now.
2: Not a gigantic job market out there for philosophy majors. It's no. kind of uh, you go just back to school and get a master's, and then maybe get a PhD, and then you maybe teach people that are studying philosophy. Yeah, right? or
3: just go work in a wine store. You know, there's, there's yeah, it, it's. Um, no, but it, it was cool. I, it was, uh, I had a summer job working in this wine shop and then came back my senior year in college and was kind of like the guy that was obsessed with wine. And then it just, it just made sense as something to do for a while. And it just turned into my career.
2: Were you going to school in the New York area or?
3: No, no, I went to Harvard. So it, it was, uh, in the Boston area. Um, but, uh, it, uh, I've lived the entire my entire life on the Eastern seaboard. so So how did you end up in New
2: York right after school? Just was that just a decision you wanted to get out of Boston and and get back here? Were you born in in Brooklyn?
3: I, I was born in New York and I first lived actually um, in in Cobble Hill, um, two blocks from where I live now and and a few blocks from um, where I opened Rucola. So I, I don't know. I, I only lived there for like two years before my family moved to New Jersey. Um, but I, but I think the, the brownstone, I don't know, when I saw that rucola brownstone, I I think there maybe was some trigger from (laughs) formative years, uh, had to do it. Um, but I, I moved to New Jersey actually after, um, after college and and ran, uh, the mint company out of, an old chocolate factory in Hopewell. So,
2: so how did the... Mint company come to be because it seems like a crowded market to me. From the outside, you go to the gas station, grocery store. There's already 20, 30 types of mint. So, how did you differentiate yourself? And did you know anything about uh, food production, no, large scale? I just production? didn't know
3: anything about anything. You know, <laughs> and, and among you know, a lot of really bad decisions I've made in my life. Uh, you know, just starting a company with really no job experience in a mature industry where um, our competitors were multi-billion dollar conglomerates started in the 19th century, that was probably the craziest um, thing I've ever done. So it was fun though. Um, we, uh, you know, did all the R&D. We did the manufacturing ourselves. Um, I got to travel around the country, got to know different markets. We sold into coffee. Uh, we sold into hotels. Um, we sold to airlines. I didn't know anything about uh, the world economy. I was just, you know, studying philosophy. So it was... It was a great um, primer on just learning about how the world actually works.
2: And so when you said you do R&D, did you, were you tinkering around in a kitchen and you thought maybe this could be a company or did you set out to just make something tasty that maybe you and your friends or you could give them away as gifts and then it, it sort of spiraled, spawned in, into its own standalone company?
3: Um, my co-founder actually worked at the wine store and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he and uh, I and, and another guy who co-founded it with us, um, we would just drink wine and come up with kind of silly flavor names like Seven Deadly Cinnamon and then um, Antioxidants and Mojito mint. and then we would figure out how to make it really with, with no idea about whether it was practical or possible. Um, we had a sugar-free flavor. We we're like, what are we going to call this one? And and one of my friends was like, oh, let's call it sugar free, sugar free Tibet. And I was like, done. We're doing it. It's a sugar free Tibet flavor. We're giving the proceeds to Tibet House. And, and so there was just there wasn't a lot of high, highly rational decision making in the but early it, days. But it did well. Yeah, yeah. No, it did. It did, ended it up did being really well. A
2: pretty successful company.
3: Yep. In, um, in
2: spite of all of you not thinking that it was a real company, you had to kind of dig in and turn it into that, yeah, right?
3: Yeah, it, it, it snuck up on us. It was, it was a real manufacturing company. We distributed to tens of thousands of locations around the world um, and so when I was 26, it was it was going great. Um, in 2008, uh, you know, it, we dropped um, from September to October 75% and it just kind of stayed there and Um, then, you know, I wound up selling it to a specialty food conglomerate. And, and so you, you know, you walk away from that aspect of, uh, the
2: food world, you're, you're manufacturing a CPG, a consumer product good. And you, uh, do you walk down the street in your old neighborhood and see a brownstone and think, oh, maybe I'll open up a restaurant there. Walk me through the process of what the next stage was and how you decided to go into the restaurant.
3: Yeah, I mean the the sale of, of of Oral Fix was pretty rough. I mean we sold it for five percent of what it had been worth previously, um, and so you know obviously uh, the the recession and all of our exposure and you know that being my first kind of you know traumatic recession event, um, we learned a lot and I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something more local. You know my my job was uh, basically going to a desk and emailing people in different countries for huge orders and trying to understand, you know, macroeconomic events that were totally beyond me. And I, I just wanted to, I wanted to stay in food because, um, you know, that was the most fun thing that I did was getting involved with hotels and coffee, um, with the mints, but, uh, I, I wanted to be able to actually see it, you know, so what's great about Rukla, it's one room. Um, you can see everything uh, important that's happening in that room with the guests, and then you can go into the kitchen, and it's right there, or go downstairs, and it's it's very tangible. It's very small. It's very everything that oral fixation mints was not. So, And...
2: I love that you you uh, you you got kind of killed in the in the recession and you and you decided to do the most risky business that you could ever go into, which is a restaurant. But yeah. you you decide to move forward with Rucola and you find this beautiful space for people that haven't gone. It's on the corner on a residential block. It has sort of a old world kind of wrought iron facade. It has some big windows, but it is. Very cozy. It's tucked in there. Uh, how did it look when you guys first found it? Was it?
3: Oh man, overrun. It, it was a total disaster. It, it was. Um, it had been an illegal apartment for thirty years. Um, it was a bunch of separate rooms. There's, there's no, um, there's nothing you can see in Rukla that was there, mm-hmm. other than the brick wall and um, I guess the uh, some of the wrought iron in the front. Um, but everything, you know, the, the plaster paint, the the floor, the ceiling, um, the walls, the bar, obviously, uh, everything we, we had to put in, you know.
2: Did you take on, uh, partners in the project? Were you planning on, on doing it all alone? And, uh, how did you connect with those people?
3: Yeah. Um, well, I was very fortunate in that, uh, my cousin Julian was working as, um, a manager in Prime Meats at the time. And, you know, we'd always you know, been going out for for a few years and kicked around the idea of maybe opening a restaurant together. And um, I saw the space. I really wanted to open a restaurant, but, you know, there's no way that I could have done it completely on my own without his help. And I was also dating somebody at the time who was um, working in Brooklyn restaurants. And so I had a lot of help kind of from my friends and family. And uh, Julian, obviously, who's gone on to do some really incredible things elsewhere.
2: And so beyond just kind of gutting the whole place and saying we're going to do a restaurant there, how did you and Julian and the rest of the folks that you were working with determine the style, the vibe? What did you think? Did you think the neighborhood needed something specific or did you come up with an idea and say we're doing it here?
3: I I mean, the space really felt like it demanded something. um such a beautiful corner. Um, uh, for me, when I saw the space, the entire concept kind of followed. I wanted to do something that was um you know, a reasonable everyday price point, and kind of every single decision in the restaurant would be would be driven around making it the perfect neighborhood restaurant, not trying to go for anything more or anything less, but, the style of service, the design, um, the style of food—it being something that you could actually go to three times a week and not get sick of, but be innovative enough that it's not—you wouldn't be like, "Oh, I could have made this at home. I feel ripped off." Was it a hit immediately? Was
2: it empty? How long did it take before it kind of caught on with folks?
3: Six months. Yeah, um, it was. It was. It felt good right away. You know, the first thing that we did at Rucola was. Um, we went and foraged a bunch of ramps, and then we just gave them away. You know, we, we we put them out on this gigantic table in front of the restaurant for for people that were around, and we we're just like, "Hey, take one. Uh, come back in a week. We'll be opening." And so that was a nice kind of formative exercise, like with the team in terms of setting the values of the restaurant and trying to. From day one, we we tried to win the trust of the neighborhood because it is such a special neighborhood and there have been, you know, communities living there for a very long time and we we were the newcomers. And so we, I think we we tried to go in with a lot of humility about, about what we wanted to do. It was not supposed to be fancy in any way. And I think people dug that. What were your
2: hopes and expectations? So, you know, you, you'd done a business, it had had you know, sort of a great success. And then the recession, which is obviously out of everyone's control, uh, damaged that business. So you move into this, did you have expectations in the back of your mind? If this is successful, I'm going to continue to open up restaurants or did you not think that far ahead?
3: I didn't, you know, I think I I was, um, I was coming out of this incredibly, uh, kinetic period of, of survival. I I think, you know, Rucola in some ways feels like a restaurant that somebody just opened having been burned by a recession you know it I don't know that it's recession proof I don't know that anything is but um, I think we just wanted to make it work and uh, you know have like like a a real business and kind of meaningfully contribute to that neighborhood I mean it was going to be us or, or somebody else doing something cool or doing something lame and I think we just wanted it to be really really good and you know, figure it out, the rest out later. It's the, it's not a fussy restaurant, which
2: it, which it, it's accessible, but the food is maybe not on the menu complex, but it is very much a make you guys make everything at oh, the yeah. restaurant. So uh, it's a it's a chef restaurant for sure, even though it is a neighborhood restaurant. Uh, maybe not so much on paper as meta. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that project and how it came to be, but before we get there, what was the next thing that happened after Rucola? Was it Fitzcarraldo? Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, um, third ward put out a request for proposals. Um, we won it. We opened Fitzcarraldo. Third ward closed, um, I think a month. Uh, within two months. And what is Third
2: Ward for those that don't live in Brooklyn? Yeah. Uh,
3: Third Ward uh, is kind of an OG Morgantown um, institution. Um, I think they opened in 2006 or 2007. It was kind of a, it was kind of a WeWork actually, but but it was it, it was a gym for artists where there there was all this equipment and. Um, you know, people would pay a subscription to uh, use the stuff, and then they started teaching these really cool classes, and, and it was an incredible maker community. And we were really excited, being a community-driven restaurant group, um, about being the place in the building to, you know, serve um, those those artisans, many of whom were, were friends. Um, so when they closed... Um, they they just left like everything, the computers were all still there. There were coffee cups half filled on desks, and and the building was empty. And and, and it was like thirty thousand square feet of vacancy. And then we were in this little seven hundred square foot space. So that was another survival act, just and, keeping and, that open.
2: And when you but when you open there, your uh, uh, obviously your hopes were oh there this is gonna be there's going to be shows, there's going to be gallery spaces, there's going to be people coming in to take classes. There's going to be a lot of bodies moving in and out of the space. When they left, how did you, did you morph the project at all? And were you nimble before that? Or did that force you to basically become a very nimble owner and, and pivot what the concept was?
3: Yeah. I think, 2008, 2009 just kind of rewired me to be a bit of a survivalist um, because we didn't actually sell the company until 2010. And we had to do many, many things to survive. Um, But Fitz, yeah, I mean, we we had a beautiful space. It was in a super cool neighborhood. And so then we started doing more events. You know, we did events with Triple Canopy. Um, We did some pretty cool events with math. Um, we started doing weddings uh, with my catering company, Purs there, and rehearsal dinners. Um, and uh, our chef, uh, Vinny Campos, um, just started doing these elaborate tasting menus for $45. You know, so we... Uh, it, it was a very um, special space, actually, in those years when it was otherwise vacant because we could do anything in the building. You know, there, it was total freedom, anything in the alley. So we also had some great parties. Yeah, people kind of discussed
2: this Brooklyn DIY time frame, and it was very much of that moment where things were looser, and I mean that in a good way. You could kind of come up with an idea at 9 a.m. and put it into effect at 5 p.m. that day, Uh, but it's not really at least from an outside perspective, it doesn't feel sustainable to have a space that doesn't have like a, a true identity attached to it. And it's always kind of changing. Did Fitzcarraldo uh, ever truly solidify as having its own identity or was it always kind of like a moving target?
3: Um, I think, I think it has, Uh, you know, I was with a friend of mine the other day and he was like, no offense, but like, he's like Fitzcarraldo is just the, the restaurant that won't, die like, what what is going on over there I'm like well you know we're taking a little bit of a pause and we have this cool thing um, you know side projects around it uh, but I think I think it's it has to be the craziest thing that that I do in terms of restaurants like there's there's nothing um, I don't I don't want to go beyond it because it it's been so <laughs> impractical to keep it open <laughs> and um, I I think it's it's Fitzgeraldo like the movie it, it's this crazy um, and, you know, I've always said, like, is this the movie Corraldo, or is this the plot of Fitzcarraldo? Because the plot is about this crazy lunatic that wants to open an opera house in the Amazon and it's just a, a bad idea, just plows ahead anyway. But the movie is amazing, you know. And so I think we've always had that tension with Fitz where it's like it's a bad idea, but it's also kind of a magical place, you know. What comes first for
2: you, uh, ideation, concept uh, building or is it you see a space and the space then gets your brain turning?
3: Yeah I think I see a space in a, in a context and and sometimes that that context is the the community um, and I try to uh, listen to um, what it feels like that space or neighborhood or or community needs and try to do something of actual value to them where you're not just, you know, serving people food because they happen to walk in there and it's random and it sucks and they're never going to come back or because they're kind of trapped, you know, they're already in the building and they have to go eat there. Like we actually want to meet people with, with what they want. And, um, so that, that takes a lot of listening and kind of asking, but the space is, is a big part of it. You
2: mentioned Lane catering a little bit ago. Did that come, was that born out of, uh, Rucola, Fitzgeraldo? Yeah. How did that come about?
3: Uh, That was just born out of, you know, restaurants being bad at weddings, most restaurants, my restaurants, you know, it's very, it's very difficult for um, a business where the DNA is structured around, you have this box and it's a certain maximum number of people that can come in and you know where things are. And then you transition that to, okay, we're going to do that for five times as many people. Everything comes out at once. You're popping up in a field. You know, you don't have like the slotted spoon in the space that you're used to it. And so, you know, we had sufficient demand from people who were like, I had my first date at Arukula and then someone proposed to me and I wanna obviously get, you know, married with, with you guys as my caterer. So per, per grew out of that. And then it became you know a much broader idea.
2: And so you just hit on a couple things that make catering difficult, but also the margins are quite good. So as a business model it can be very lucrative to either help offset hard weeks, hard months, hard days at a restaurant, but it can also just help grow everything. So yeah. did you have to uh, find an additional space for that? And logistically, it's it has to be, even if you would have called it Rukula catering, right, it kind of would have been like opening a second restaurant almost to do the catering, right? Definitely,
3: yeah. I mean, Rukula is busy, so, and we do not have a lot of space. Um, So the idea of, you know, running catering out of that kitchen was never, never really feasible. So, um, you know, we started, you know, in a partnership with um, kind of the green building in 501 and using a little bit of kitchen space there. And then we moved uh, into Greenpoint, into the old cassette space. And now we actually have um, finally our own kind of huge commissary in Gowanus um, sharing the building with public records, and uh, Studio Tech, it's a nice community over there. So how did you um,
2: connect with the... Did, did Public Records basically because you were already there or were you there and then Public Records opened? Like In terms how did of that, why
3: we're doing their food? Yeah,
2: is that just like... Geographically, it makes sense, and they like you. Or did Public Records um, um, find the space and invite you to come use it as a commissary? Yeah,
3: no, I mean the, the landlord there was familiar with uh, Rukula, mm-hmm. and um, which is four blocks away. Right. So um, they invited us in, and then you know we started chatting with Public Records, and it was very clear that you know there was an affinity um, in terms of our values. I was working on nowadays, and and it just kind of made sense that we would do the food. And they didn't have a ton of back, of back of house space either. So to be able to use our kitchen to kind of prep and, and our team over there as their kitchen team, um, it made sense in, in the same way. Uh, we like doing projects where someone is focused on, you know, another thing like Metrograph being focused on films or nowadays being focused on kind of the Beer Garden Club experience or Public Records being, you know, focused on all of their programming and just kind of showing up and doing the food you know it's it's fun and it's it's rewarding for us cuz we get to hang out there
2: you have a lot of places a lot of moving pieces as you grow did you increase your infrastructure was there a certain tipping point where you thought much too much for me and Julian and, you know, the other people that you already had at each spot to handle. And did you add in layers of a director of operations or an HR component, or do you still really handle most of the high level kind of management of the restaurant group?
3: Um, there was a moment when we went from kind of one to two and it just felt like going from one to many, because suddenly we, we weren't all going to the same space all the time. I had to figure out how to divide payroll between multiple entities that it made sense to kind of create, um, the Oberin group and that company became a service provider to the restaurants in terms of, we do all the bookkeeping. We do bookkeeping for other restaurants too, but, um, and a little bit of consulting, but, uh, that has kind of become, you know, the vessel for the hospitality group. And, um, for a while it was just kind of amorphous projects and, and it's become much, much more about, um, sustainability in the, in the past, you know, I would say a few years. So it, it, we started out as kind of this community driven group looking to create, you know, connection and intimate spaces. And I think it's a, a much broader, uh, idea now. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about meta and also
2: of course, sustainability and the brand new project that just opened a couple days ago. Stick with us here on the line. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Nourish and Flourish showcases thought-provoking stories from around the world and stunning photography. Each issue explores emerging trends in food, nutrition, recipes, soil health, technology, regenerative agriculture, travel, and more. Volume one of Nourish and Flourish includes features on the Svalbard Global Seed Bank, the International Symposium on Bread, and ancient Hawaiian aquaculture. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. For $29.99, you'll receive three issues. That's 38% off the retail price. Nourish and Flourish connecting readers with the people and stories that make a difference in living a more balanced, healthier life. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at nourishandflourish.site.
2: welcome back to the line here on heritage radio my guest today is henry rich he has multiple locations across brooklyn uh rucola fitz he does the food at the commissary at the metrograph nowadays public records and they just opened redora wine bar did i pronounce that correctly yep redora, redora. wine bar and redora wine bar is housed in the space that used to be a restaurant called Meta, which you owned. Mm -hmm. And Meta was open for a couple years. And at that space, you partnered uh, with a very well-known chef. And it was a very ambitious project in its own right. You've now decided to step it up and do perhaps an even more ambitious project. So let's start first with Meta. Can you describe what was the style of restaurant? What were the goals when you had, when you opened that space and who you partnered with?
3: Yeah. Um, so, uh, the management team, it was, it was me and, uh, Negro Pietoni, um, Peter Dowling and, um, you know, Alex Ricabono and, uh, Taraja, um, who has, uh, also a blog, um, and, uh, is, is a food writer and, um, we were the first, I believe, uh, all wood fired restaurant in New York, which felt exciting and crazy. And, and it was limiting in a way that, um, that we liked because, you know, in order to prep anything, you were kind of hanging um, these slabs of meat. And um, Negro, who had worked for Francis Mallman for a number of years as, as a head chef, um, and who's just from, uh, Argentina where they just, everybody has kind of a grill in their house. Um, he taught us, uh, so much about, um, open fire cooking and just was, uh, that was very, very exciting. Also aesthetically, um, the way that the, the wood fire, uh, you know, tasted, looked everything about it was just, you know, very romantic. Um, there was a sustainability component where we were trying to do low waste, uh, we're trying to do a fermentation program because, um, you know, Negro had brought a few people over from his time at Bar Tartine. And, um, so it was this cool combination of, of ferments and fire and smoke and acidity. And also, um, doing the wine program. I love pairing wines with, you know, a, like a hyper, uh, acidic stew with like a, a, like a burned piece of meat in it. It was, it was insane. Um, yeah, so that, that was, that was meta, um. And you open there. It's it
2: opened on a sort of like a cozy side street in in Fort Greene. And Mm -hmm. what was the initial reaction uh, from guests? And how did you feel when you opened it? It was. Can we call it like your second traditional restaurant that you'd open? Is that fair to say? Well, June. Oh yeah, wine
3: wine bar has 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 full food. Yeah. Um. Into. You know, kind of a restaurant. I eat dinner there all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, Meadow was different for me because I always wanted to put um, the guest experience um, and at and you know, service and design and all these things kind of at the forefront, and not have other um, kind of big personalities attached to projects, and just we all would all kind of blend into the background. And because of the style of cooking, um, uh, it was just a much higher octane project for me. Um, generally, my projects don't get a lot of press, and they're pretty low key, kind of neighborhood affairs. This was different, um, and so that was very different for me. And unfortunately, it got to a
2: point where uh, it was not working, or you know, there was there was something that resulted in. Uh, you closing it and you transitioning to something else. That's always a super difficult uh, moment for any business person in any vertical whatsoever. You have to, you know, either be told or lo- take a hard look in the mirror and say something is not working here. Then maybe the numbers aren't adding up. Can you talk a little bit about when you started thinking about that and also? How did you wind things down at yeah. your project?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, i I could talk for a long time about what didn't work um, at Meta. Uh, it was a little bit more expensive than um, uh, my projects generally are, um which you know, I wasn't totally comfortable with. Um, in some people's opinions, we weren't expensive enough. Um but certainly, given uh, the style of food that we were doing, the amount of protein, um, the focus on sustainability, I mean Meta was the first carbon neutral zero food print carbon neutral restaurant in New York. And I just I don't think we were very good at messaging that because people basically knew meta for the fire and um, the kind of open fire style of cooking and we'll come in and order steak and no one was really kind of focused on the holistic kind of sustainable approach to that restaurant and so it was also very popular for the first six months um with people that were interested in kind of coming once to the weird kind of wood fire ferment restaurant um checking it off and didn't return Mm -hmm. which is the opposite of of kind of my general approach for opening places and, and really um kind of trying to connect with the neighborhood and building regulars and um so I think, I think given how slammed we were, there was always an, an insane way. It was always super packed. And then one day we weren't and probably a lot of the people that live nearby tried to come in and couldn't get in. And then they tried again they couldn't get in. And, and, um, that's rough. You know, I think when you have a kind of a slightly higher octane press driven restaurant, it's more conceptual and, um, it's really, really busy, and then within two years it's closed it it 's a pattern in you know New York or everywhere that um, I never wanted to be a part of but the the fundamentals of meta were just so exciting that I kind of made an exception in that case Is there a part
2: of you that thinks that down the line it could work in a in a different way, but like similarly a fully wood-fired restaurant? Or do you, have you sort of closed the book on that concept for now?
3: No. I mean, I, I, I love that style of cooking. You know, I, I think there could be something really exciting maybe upstate. Um, you know, it's, it's hard in the city too um, with uh, wood fire. There's um, the, the politics around it are, are really tricky. Um, there's a lot of safety concerns, um, that, you know, came up like FDNY is not easy mm-hmm. on you if you have an all wood fireplace. Um, I'm sure it makes them very uneasy to yeah. to see the huge flames
2: going sure. on. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And and maybe it's something that could exist like in a, in a far flung kind of industrial area that would be, that would be awesome being in the middle of this neighborhood. You know, there were some neighbors that objected. Um, that was, that was hard. Um, but I, know, I imagine that, you know. Um, Negro may do something um, in this in this style somewhere or some other chefs that have this background. Um, there's a lot of incredible, you know, alumni from from Malman restaurants too that are, are doing amazing things. I mean, Ignacio Matos is like, I mean, there, there, there's a great uh, group of people that have that background.
2: When you decided to close it down and transition it, you moved to a... Different style of restaurant in in more than one way. The first way is that it is uh, it's not going to be a chef driven restaurant. Uh, yeah. I- is it fair to say that it is more uh, small snackable shareable items? Is that is that a fair representation of what the menu will now look like to a certain extent? Oysters and and things of that nature, small salads and. Uh, without a chef, the expectation is that the staff is going to, everyone's going to do everything, right?
3: Yeah. So uh, it's it's a, Rador is a, a big idea um, in terms of, you know, the kind of communal staff situation, everybody rotating through every position, um, you know, the zero waste thing, carbon neutrality, natural wine. Um, it all kind of works together. But, I mean, I've had dinner there every day night for the past week um you can definitely have dinner but it's it's limited by things that we can work with in a zero waste way so it's limited but um yeah if you like salad meats cheeses um sardines uh she wolf bread and you know like you, you can have a great dinner actually I think a lot of people also
2: love to eat dinner that way, which is like piece together certain things and not necessarily be dictated to like, you must have a starter and then you must have an entree. Uh, It sounds like it could be the neighborhood spot that mirrors a lot of your other neighborhood spots. There are some other really fascinating aspects changes that you've made. And I'm just gonna read off a couple. So in order to go completely uh, zero waste, there's so many challenges. So you had to source wine in compostable boxes. Mm -hmm. There's uh, nothing that is basically unrecyclable. So if something comes in a container that you can't recycle, you had to move away from that brand, even Mm -hmm. if it was something that you enjoyed. You found a dishwashing machine that uses electrolyzed water and that yeah. eliminates
3: the need for soap completely. It actually electrocutes salt to make like a, a soapy solution, just like basic salt. It's really crazy. That sounds insane.
2: I've yeah. never even heard of that before. Uh, so there's no paper receipts. You re you turn over your wine corks to a company that turns them into mm-hmm. shoe soles. So I'm sure the list is extremely long because everything had to be thought of from top to bottom. I'm sure it was a massive undertaking. How did you and your team find the time to source every single item basically anew? And also, did you reach a point where you thought, is this possible? Did you, uh, did you go abroad and, and find, re- cause there are some restaurants that do this, but not very many. So did you look to them for a playbook
3: here? 100%. Um, so, uh, Lauren Singer, who has been a zero waste activist for many years, um, connected me with Doug McMaster who, um, opened a restaurant silo in Brighton and silo has been doing this and more for five years. Um, silo all the glass that comes into there because they don't even like to recycle. Um, they break it down into sand and, and somehow put it in a kiln and they make all their plates out of it. So there, uh, Doug, Doug is, you know, a visionary and a radical and he came over to do a pop up with Lauren and us, um, to Fitzcarraldo. And, uh, we did silo New York for a week and it was this incredible experience of seeing how zero waste worked in practice and all the ways in which, you know, you start with this one decision, which is to remove a trash bin from your restaurant, every part of your restaurant. And you suddenly need to innovate around, okay, like, I can't throw this out. You know, what do I do with it? Is it recyclable? And you you have to ask all these questions that you'd never had to ask before because we have trash bins following us around our entire lives. Just, you know, disappearing, um, our entire waste stream. And so it was a really exciting, extremely challenging, um, task, but we took two months and, um, you know, we, we had a lot of help from, from Doug, uh, honestly. And, and he was very patient with us and got on calls about like what kind of composter to get. And, um, you know, he, I think does the electrocuted salt thing, in, in Brighton as well. So
2: how did you even source that machine? Uh,
3: someone in
2: the United States make it, or did you have to ship it?
3: There's a great company, EcoLogic Solutions, and um, they sell um, slightly more you know ecological soaps because um, the industrial chemical process, uh, the actual processing, and obviously the disposal of those chemicals uh, down the drain um, are both terrible for the environment. And um, they they also make this crazy you know el- electrocute the salt machine that turns into soap, and that cuts down on um, having to bring in um, soapy containers. Uh, so now we, we don't we actually can just create our own soap, and, and so we're we're cutting down on the um, any plastic we need to recycle there.
2: You're definitely trying to set the bar high and creating a model that, that people can emulate. You know, when you go around, you drive around at eight o'clock at night, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and you see all these restaurants, like they're piling their trash out of the street. Yeah. And it's it's insane, really. Like it's actually mind boggling to even try to fathom where it all goes and how much space it takes up. And it's it's awesome that, uh, that you're doing all these things and, and hopefully it's proof of concept I I wonder yeah. if if you think that it's feasible at every single price point for every single restaurant are we are we in a place where you think that high end restaurants should and could be doing this because of the price point that they charge or
3: well high end restaurants 100 percent I mean Rodora's is, is relatively accessible you can have you know a full dinner and a glass of wine there for I don't know thirty like $2. If you come in happy hour, much less. Um, so certainly, um, people who are, uh, on the fine dining side of things should be, uh, you know, going, trying to go zero waste or just lowering waste. Um, and a lot of people are, a lot of people talk about cross utilization of ingredients. Um, a lot more people are composting. Um, but, um, there's still a lot of restaurants that, that, uh, that don't compost, which is um, you know, terrifying. Uh, that food waste is um, 8% of total climate emissions. And it's, um, if it were a country, it'd be third after the United States and China. So it's, um, we have, as an industry, we have an obligation to do our part in not um, accelerating climate change by doing the bare minimum, which would be composting and recycling. Uh, and in my opinion, going carbon neutral. Um, which is also a straightforward thing to do. The zero waste thing is the hardest part of it because it requires you to limit what you provide in a way that makes life harder on your staff. And um, it means you're not going to have certain things for guests, which sucks when you're in hospitality. But
2: yeah, it's, uh, you yeah. have to have specific conversations with people. Oh, we can't actually give you a receipt. <laughs> We yeah. can't. We well, thermal can't.
3: paper is, is toxic, right? Right. So, so we're doing away with the whole ticket system because um, that's that's straight up hazmat. Like so. Um, yeah. So
2: how do orders even come into the kitchen?
3: Um, we're we're getting this kind of uh, screen system where um, you put an order in, and well, there's not really a kitchen, you know? <laughs> so it, it's just pantry, mm-hmm. and um, you have kind of servers moving around to our kind of grabbing things and there's a little bit of assembly but not not more than you would have say at the bar you know assembling a drink Um, and the team has just been incredible in terms of the amount of um, responsibility that they've taken to be able to explain you know zero waste what we're doing talking about natural wine Uh, it's not easy because a lot of people come in and, and they're they're pissed off that we're not frankly that we're not meta you know some people just haven't been paying attention haven't been in for like you know six months
2: most of your products are projects are in the uh in in the middle of the dining spectrum we'll just we'll call it upscale casual Mm because i don't know what else to call it maybe you have a better term but um there definitely are sort of couple zones there's like the fast casual at the bottom there's the fine dining at the top i'm curious if you Uh, Have any interest in exploring either of those categories Uh, do you see yourself ever doing something that is like a sandwich shop and has an $11 price point do you ever get an inkling to open up a tasting menu restaurant that's $200 a person or do you love where June and Rucola
3: and all these places kind of sit in the New York landscape I love where we sit Because it's the vanishing middle. It's the vanishing middle in society. And um, if I wanted to be a kind of service provider for one percent of the population, I would have gone into banking or something. You know, I I think um, we like, you know, being a special occasion place. Like Rukla is a special occasion place for a lot of people, and um, for other people, they eat there every day and it's, it's not a big deal. You know, they can, they can relax and, and it's not this kind of, um, show of consumption and wealth. And, and I think our projects, all of them have kind of tried to run from that, um, you know, replacing, replacing value with, with cost, which can happen in New York restaurants that are obscenely expensive. It it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Like I, I I go out because I want to you know, feel good and hang out with people and and be in an environment that's intimate. And when I'm spending a certain amount of money, I just, I don't, I don't love the way it makes me feel. So I wouldn't be very good at that. As a
2: climate activist and, and a restaurant owner and a business person, it, uh, you've, you've developed a lot of ways to, uh, buck the traditional trends that exist in restaurants, and I hope that someone listening to this episode that's you know a line cook or a server or, or someone who's in the food space is going to say, it sounds really daunting. I wish there was like one or two things that I could do myself or bring to my chef or my owner. Are there a couple just quick, easy takeaways that you would suggest if there's a restaurant out there that they want to make a small incremental change? They want to just take that next step? What are a couple things that they could do that have worked
3: for you? Um, you know, for me, at top of the list is going carbon neutral. And that is basically you, you reach out to Zero Food Print, uh, which is um, Anthony Mient's, um nonprofit, it's an incredible organization. They come in, they tell you what your footprint is, and um, then they give you various carbon negative initiatives that you can invest in. That um, will bring your kind of net footprint down to zero, and depending on how big of a restaurant you are, it's probably the cost is probably between one and three thousand dollars a year. Which, you know, it's tough in a restaurant to make it work, but um, I do think, given food's uh, massive percentage of um, climate emissions as an industry, we we do have an obligation not to externalize our cost of operation to the uh, vulnerable and unborn um that that's kind of my my primary issue around carbon food waste is super (laughs) zero waste is super hard um we're still figuring it out we'll we'll be very public about um you know all the things that are that are really hard for us um we're not trying to present an image of perfection um there's definitely it's definitely been harder than we expected but i think as um As we start asking questions of vendors, you know, we have this one vendor uh, that we asked about: Can you not ship the linens in plastic? And they were like, "Yeah, sure." And maybe we actually just won't ship linens in plastic in general. I'm like, "Yeah, why? Why do you do that? That seems like a waste of money. It's in a cloth bag." And so, you know, that's one instance in which maybe they have a thousand customers, and, and that might be the biggest impact of the restaurant is just kind of ask questions of vendors, see what they're willing to do, and most people will not want to work with you, but, um, there are people out there that are super excited about sustainability. Um, so, you know, I guess that's important. Plastic straws, I feel like is kind of done. Great job, everyone. Um, other things that have been easy, you know, compost and recycle. It's, it's kind of, um, surprising, uh, still walking down, you know, streets um, around New York and just seeing 100 bags of, of trash and no recycling. Um, that's, that's probably the easiest thing that people could do right now.
2: Henry, can you let everybody know the address of Rodora where they can check out uh, the new spot and and all the interesting things that you're doing on the operational side, but also it sounds like you've got a bunch of delicious new menu items and you're sourcing a lot of great things from some of your friends and partners locally as well. So where's Redora and then also where's Rucola and what's your website that they can find all the other projects on as well?
3: Yeah, the website is um, theoberon.co, theoberon.co, and, um, you know, also Redora, BK, Redora, that's R-H-O-D-O-R-A, and uh, Rukula is Rukula Brooklyn, and, um, you know, I think we have Instagram accounts for all of those that are are pretty searchable. I think Redora is new. It's Redora Wine Bar. Um, And, Redor is in Fort Greene at uh, 197 Adelphi at the intersection of Adelphi and Willoughby. Um, Rucola is at 190 Dean, also on a corner um, at the intersection of Dean and Bond. June is on Court Street, uh, where Baltic dead ends at 231 Court. And um, yeah, I think that's probably enough info <laughs> for people. Henry, thanks so much for joining us, telling us about
2: all the projects that you have and all the things you're doing to make, uh, your restaurants and hopefully other restaurants and other businesses engage in some smart, sustainable, uh, productive, proactive practices, uh, so that we can all reduce our waste a little bit and, uh, make the world just a slightly better place to live in for us and for those that are coming after us. Appreciate you being here.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of The Line. You can find this episode, all episodes of The Line, and more than 30 shows that are currently on at heritageradionetwork.org. And we'll be back next week at Tuesday at 11 a.m. for another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio.